Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. So we're starting this series, Asking for a Friend. Got lots of questions, and man, are they tough. A lot of them have been difficult, and I'm excited about it, but at the same token, I'm kind of mad at Brian and Mike for saying, hey, try and stump the pastor. Just give him the most difficult question. I mean, people are probably Googling most biblical, difficult biblical questions, and then they're writing them down. That's probably what you did, huh? So, uh, you know, now, seriously, it's easy to stump me, but the, the fascinating thing is that I have all the answers that we can have right here. So the reality is, is if there's an answer and I can find it in here, then you'll get to hear about it. But, you know, it, it, some of these questions are obviously um, uh, controversial and, and all of that. And so, you know, I'll do my best to, to bring the word in light of what I believe that it's saying you know, in, in particular subject, uh, subjects, so don't get mad, you know, uh, and if you disagree with something, that's fine. I mean, that's all right. We, we can talk about it later. You know, when we're in heaven, you'll find out I was right, and, and then, <laughs> you, no, I'm just kidding. But, but, but it, you know, it's a great, th- this is really what the body of Christ should do, honestly, is there should be a time for us to come together and say, hey, you know, I got some questions. I, I want to ask some questions, obviously for a friend, not for me, but, you know, I want to ask some questions about uh, some of the things that, you know, I've encountered in the Bible or people I've t- had conversations with people or just things that have come across my mind. And so that's what we're doing um, tonight. And um, so the, 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 the one question that I'm, I want to start with, I think is kind of paramount to the Christian faith. And I think that as we as we, we, we have to build on it. And, and I find that, um, you know, even in, if you've ever been to the Creation Museum or anything like that, or, or you know, like uh, if there's a study, uh, you know, foundation study, it always starts with this particular subject, and the subject is sin. You know, and cr- the Creation Museum is phenomenal because it starts with sin, and it helps us understand from the beginning, you know, that, uh, you know, as Satan fell in the garden and as men fell, then, you know, how that created this world that we live in. And so for us to have a proper biblical understanding, we have to understand sin. We have to understand where does sin come from? That was really the, the question that I was asked. And the, the, the question specifically was this. It said, has sin ever been in heaven? If not, what about Satan? Did God create sin? If not, what about Satan? And so, you know, I'm not a big Satanologist, and I, I, don't, I don't like, but the Bible does speak about Lucifer. It speaks about Satan. It's, it speaks about his pre-fall nature, and it talks about his post-fall nature. And so, we're going to dig into that a little bit, and we're going to unearth, you know, because ultimately, the origin of sin comes, uh, you know, originally from he's the first one to fall, and a third of the angels after that. And then obviously mankind. And, and we're going to see from a biblical standpoint that the premise was the same. It doesn't matter if you're an angel or a human being. That the reality is that sin was created or sin came as a result of desire. As a result of desire. Um, you know, the Bible speaks to us about our own desires. It speaks to us about 
how our own, you know, James does a phenomenal job in James chapter 1 of explaining to us how sin works in our life. You know, James says in James 1, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so, when we consider this subject about where sin came from, you know, how, how sin affected Satan in the first place, and then how it related to you and I uh, today, how, how Adam and Eve fell and all of that, you know, the reality is it, it came as a result of desire. It came as a result of desire. That's why the Bible tells us in Proverbs 37, 4, to delight ourselves in the Lord because he'll give us the desires of our heart. But, but I believe what that verse is speaking of is he will give us the proper desires. He will give us the right desires that will, that will draw us towards him and not away from him. Um, if, if I were to answer this question, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I can answer it quickly, yes, no, no, yes, and we could go home. But, but I think you want more than that. I think you want to know what the Bible says about that. And so, I, you know, it, it's interesting. The subject matter that we have to come to before we even get to that is we have to talk briefly about the sovereignty of God. We have to talk about, because the question is, ultimately, I think what the, ultimately the question was being asked is, is God sovereign? And if he is, then how did sin come to be? Does that mean that God created sin? I think that's really at the core of the question what's being asked there is, is God responsible for sin? Now, we know that the reality is God is perfect, that his nature, we just sang it, that he is good. He's a good, good father. You know, um, there's a a verse I was looking up just a second ago about this, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In verse 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is perfect, and he, does, he is not the orchestrator of evil. Now, how in the world, then, uh, you know, and, and people will run to this particular verse to say, oh, actually, he is. The Bible says that. Where does it say that at? It, well, it says that in Isaiah 45, 7. It says, says this, I formed light and created darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. And that word calamity in the, in the King James is translated, they translated it evil. So, so it would say, you know, I make well-being and create evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. The, the question of the matter is, maybe it's a translation issue, or maybe the word evil doesn't mean what, what we would translate it to mean in our own language. And, and the reality is that when Bible translators look at this particular word, uh, many other translations translate it calamity. You know, that God, God orchestrates, he stirs the world up. He allows you know, you know, natural, you know, things to happen. He allows different things to happen in the world to point us to him. Because we know, we all know at the end of the day that without, 
any calamity in our lives, we would have never come to Christ. We would have never, ever known. We would have never had a desire to come to Christ. We wouldn't have had any reason to come to Christ. But, but the reality is, is that it was through calamity. It was through some trouble in our own hearts. It was through some emptiness that we were experiencing. It was through, you know, lots of tribulation that you came to that place where you said, I need Jesus, you know? And, and so it, it's, it's, uh, I, that translation is not a good translation. And, um, you know, I think the ESV does a good, better job at that. And it translated the word calamity. The context of the verse is relating to the sovereignty of God, for sure. God's in control, 100%. He is in control of everything. You know, but that doesn't mean that God is the orchestrator of the calamity. And I think that is the difference. You know, it, did God actually create it? I was thinking of an illustration today about this particularly, and I was thinking, okay, how can I illustrate that? Like, like someone being, you know, we're not sovereign as human beings, but there's some things that we can, some illustrations that I think would, would parallel the idea. And I was thinking as a, as a father, you know, and um, I, I am in my own household with my little kids, in, in a sense, I'm pretty sovereign. I, I'm, pre I'm in control. I can, I can handle whatever's happening in there, you know, and, and I was thinking, you know, as a little child would, if I was sitting at my kitchen table, I was watching my little child um, walk towards the stove, and I just got done cooking something. And I said to my child, I said, don't touch the stove. It's hot. And I sat there. Now, I'm in control. I could get up and remove the child from the situation if I wanted to, but I'm trying to teach my child to hear my voice and to obey me. So I allow my child to go towards the stove. And I, again, say in a loving voice, don't touch that. It's bad for you. It will hurt you. But I'm in control, right? I, I could get up and get him out of the way. He proceeds to go to the stove and puts his finger on the burner that I said, don't do that to because it's hot. And what happened? He got burned. He got burned. Now, I could have stopped that from happening, but there was a lesson in it. But does that mean I orchestrated it? Did I create the burn? No, I allowed it to happen for my own purpose. I allowed it to happen so that I could teach my child a very simple lesson. Listen to my voice, and I will not steer you wrong. Isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice. And, and, you know, the idea of a shepherd with a sheep and the fact of the matter of, you know, how they, you know, the, the picture of the, the sheep over the shoulders of the shepherd and the reason, by the way, they're there is because the shepherd has broken the legs of the sheep or a leg of the sheep to, to teach them to hear his voice. That's the whole point of it. And so to say that God orchestrates these things would be way off track. But to say that God allows them for his own purpose, I believe is biblical. I believe that that is the point. And here's the thing is, sometimes we don't understand that. Why is there evil in the world? Well, we know why. It's not because God created it. It's because we, because we live in a fallen world as a result of sin. But God is still sovereign, and he's still working in the midst. He's still in control, and he's trying to draw us uh, to himself, and he's trying to change us to become more like Christ. And this, this doesn't matter ultimately if you're a Christian or not. It, God is still in the same position regardless. He's not sovereign in your life when you're a Christian and not sovereign in your life when you're not. He is sovereign always. You know, and his heart would be to draw us to himself. 
you know, so, so, you know, he does put, allow things into our lives. He puts pressure into our lives. And I was thinking about this just recently, you know, a lot of different trials that I've been going through in my own personal life lately. I think like, Lord, you know, what are you doing? You know, and we can get angry with God. We, we can, because we, we understand that he's in control. But at the same token, the Lord is trying to teach us. And what I found is the more I walk with God and the more mature I become, the more he expects of me. And, and, and it's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that sometimes, <laughs> but sometimes I'm not. I'm like, dude, treat me like a little child. Remember when you first got saved and God was right there picking you up and he was doing all these amazing things in your life? And he's still doing amazing things, by the way, but he doesn't do them like he did earlier because he knows you know he's there. He knows that you know that he's at work. He, know, he needs you to grow in your face so that you can trust him more. And, and, and so that's what I'm learning. But, but I wonder sometimes, I'm thinking, Lord, you know, you're in control, and I, and, and I can get mad at God. And I think a lot of people do. And, and that's, you know what that's called? Immaturity. It's called immaturity in Christ. It's I don't quite get how the sovereignty of God works in my life and really what he's up to. The Bible tells us that he has a good plan for us. It's a, prosper, a plan that meant to prosper us. It's not an evil plan. He means for us to grow and to become more like Jesus. And here's what I find about God. He's willing to do whatever it takes to make me more like Jesus. And ultimately, isn't that our prayer? Lord, make me more like Jesus, whatever it takes. You know, I remember Third Day had a song that came out early in their, um, their career. And uh, it talked about, Lord, please take from me my life if I don't have the strength to give it over to you. And I, and I was singing those songs, you know, Lord, please take from me my life. And I thought, wait a second. I don't think I want that. But, but that, is, um, that is the prayer of somebody who truly understands their purpose in life. Lord, if I'm not doing your work, if I'm not doing what you're calling me to do, then Lord, take me out of the way. I don't want to live in that way. So, you know, God is in control. He is sovereign, but he's not the orchestrator of evil. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hated, hatred of evil. Um, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. This is God speaking. He's saying, I hate these things. I hate them. God hates evil, and he wants us to hate evil too. Psalm 97.10 says, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Pretty simple. God, you know, God is saying, I hate these things, therefore, he's not the orchestrator of them. You don't hate the things, you know, God, does, God is perfect, and he doesn't hate the thing, he doesn't orchestrate things that he hates. He wouldn't do that, it makes no sense. 1 John 1.5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, listen, and in him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness in God, he's light. He is 100% pure, bright, no darkness at all. He does not orchestrate evil. It comes back to a matter of desire. As James said in James 1.13, how are we led astray? It's a matter of desire. It's a matter of desire. It's something that, you know, the, the responsibility lies on the individual, not on the Lord. He's done everything that he can do in, in, within his own confines that he, the rules that he put upon himself, because he can do anything, 
you know, but he's, a, he, he's puts certain parameters upon himself, you know, and he will not force a man to follow him. But on the other hand, it's impossible to follow him if he doesn't call you. And so there's a dichotomy there, and, but ultimately he is the one at work, and he's in control, and he wants to work in our lives, and we want to let him do that. But, but it all comes down to what our desires are, right? God put in every one of our hearts a desire to know him. He put a desire for us to want to know him. If he didn't do that, we wouldn't want to know him. You know, the Bible says that all, we're all sinners. We've all gone astray. None of us would choose, choose good. Jesus said there is no good in this world. You know, we, we talk about people that are good. You know, we look at them and go, well, they're pretty morally on track. I mean, it seems like they're a good person. But in relationship to what God expects for the definition of being good, they're nowhere close to what he expects. We're sinners, and if God didn't put the, put the desire for us to want to know him within, within our heart, we wouldn't. We wouldn't want to know him. And so it all comes back to, you know, desire. And again, Psalm 37, 4, God putting that desire within our hearts. So I just wanted to kind of build that premise as we move into this question. Um, so I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, but if you have a Bible, you can open up to a few places uh, the two, two of the places that I'm going to be in primarily is Revelation chapter 12 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Revelation chapter 12, Ezekiel chapter 28, and um, I'm going to jump around a bit, and the, the scriptures will be up on the screen, so don't worry about it. If you miss it, you can write it down. So here we go. Here's the first question. Has sin ever been in heaven? The answer is Yes. Sin, has sin ever been in heaven? The answer is yes. Sin has been in heaven, and sin is presently in heaven because Satan is still frequenting heaven. And so sin is present even currently in heaven. But, but because of who Satan is, he doesn't dwell in heaven. That's not his living place. But he does have the capacity to visit. Do I understand that? No, I don't. But the reality is, is that God has given him that, that passage, that right to do that for whatever reason. You know, bring glory to Christ is my, is my thought. That's why he allows it. But, but there, there is sin in heaven in the sense because Satan is in heaven. Um, you know, Jesus said at, that in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Why did Satan fall like lightning from heaven? Well, that was at the point in which uh, Satan was, you know, cast out of heaven in terms of his dwelling place. But yet, he still can go back and forth, and he can, um, you know, make, he, he, he makes uh, accusation against you and I day and night, the Bible says, in Revelation 12. Satan was cast out of heaven in, in the sense that he was transformed in that moment when Jesus saw him fall like lightning from glorification to profane. In an instant, God said, be gone. And he was gone and Jesus watched him fall from heaven. Now, it's interesting, though, how all that works and, and when that happened because in relation to what we'll look at from the scriptures and where Satan was in his, perfected, um, in his perfection, uh, you know, he, he frequented the Garden of Eden as a perfect being. So it, it's kind of interesting. I'll get into that in a second. But 
But the Bible tells us that Satan currently um, has the ability to go back and forth in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, it says this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He is thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, now you have to understand something about that passage that, number one, that is future tense. It has not happened yet. Satan has not been cast out of heaven in that respect that he can no longer frequent heaven. He currently, to this day, can do that. This is sometime during the tribulation period. And, and, I, and I probably would liken it to, uh, you know, the midway tribulation period, just my own personal, you know, little tidbit of information because that is when the great tribulation happens. And yes, it will be, the wrath of God will be poured upon the earth in such a great, uh, you know, manner. But I believe also at the same to token, the enemy will also press against the church and those who stand for Christ so tremendously that there will be uh, martyrs under the seat of God that will be crying out for the blood that was shed, that, you know, for their own blood that was given as a result of following Christ. You know, so um, Satan has that capacity, so this is future tense, but one day he will not be able to frequent heaven any longer, but currently he does have the ability to do that. I, I think it's also worth noting as we're talking about heaven here, in, in specifically um, about the, the heaven that God resides in today versus the heaven that, um, you know, we will eventually live in. They're two different places. At, at this point in time, there is the old heaven, and we, would, we, we, we live on this, we live in the present heaven and the present earth, right? But there will be a new heaven and a new earth created. Why would God have to create a new heaven and a new earth? Because the old ones have been defiled, that's why. The, the old ones have been defiled, and so the Bible tells us that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, that begs the question then, if the new heaven, if the, if the, if the existing heaven that God resides in today, what is that heaven like versus the heaven that we will eventually inhabit for all of eternity? Because if you look at Revelation chapter 21, um, here's what it says. This is the promise for the new heaven. Here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared for a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
Now, how many of you guys have read that book by Randy Elkhorn called Heaven? Anybody read that book? I suggest you read the book. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good book. It's a, it's a fairly thick book, but it is a biblical book of heaven, of, of how, to, how we ought to look at heaven today and, and the heaven that will be created for us to inhabit forever. And it's a very interesting read, but he, he brings to light some questions that I don't know that we can really answer, but it's something that, we, that, that he, he pondered. And one of the things is, you know, he talked about was the idea that that promise of, you know, we always, when we think of heaven, we think of no more tears, no more sorrow, you know, n- none of that. And although heaven is, even the current heaven that we will reside in will be full of joy because Jesus is there, you know, the reality is, is there does seem to be in the, this present heaven some, some pain. You know, when you consider Revelation chapter 6, like I said earlier, where the martyrs are crying out to God because they spilt their blood, and they're saying, how long, O oh Lord, will you wait? You know, we see some of those aspects. But Randy Alcorn said this in his book. He said in the book Heaven, the, I quote, the promise of no more tears and crying is after the end of the world, after the great white throne judgment, after the old order of things has passed away, and there is no more suffering on earth. This passage is not a valid argument for tearlessness in the present heaven, but only in the new heaven and the new earth. The current heaven has been defiled by sin. It has been defiled by sin. Satan has, you know, he makes his way up and down, and he comes and goes, no doubt, and he accuses you, you and I day and night of these things. But there is coming a day when God will create a new heavens and a new earth that sin will not defile. And, and, and let me just throw this out because you might ask yourself, well, if, if the present heaven is, is, uh, is, if there is sin in the present heaven, then can I sin? No, because you're glorified. You've been changed and transformed. Your nature is no longer of flesh and bone, but you are 100% spirit. You, you have been glorified. God has changed you. In the twinkling of eye, the Bible says that we'll be changed, we'll be transformed, we'll be like Jesus. So you don't have to worry about, you know, yourself in there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put more questions in your mind than I'm going to answer tonight. So praise God for that. But uh, um, so, you know, Satan is presently in heaven, so the answer to that question is yes, you know. But, but so, so then the, that begs the next question then, if that is the reality then who created sin? If God is sovereign and, and, God, you know, and God, is, God hates evil and all of that, then how did sin come to be? How does that work? And, um, you know, I, I can simply say, no, God didn't create, you know, this uh, evil or sin, and we can go home. But let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28. I think it gives us a lot of information as it relates to Satan and how he fell. And if you've never read this before, if you've never, you know, you never researched or read anything about the enemy, about Satan, and what he was before he fell, um, tonight you're going to see some things. And it's marvelous. I mean, the, Lucifer, the angel, was a phenomenal, phenomenal angel. He, has, he was in such glory and prestige and splendor. God privileged him so much. And yet, the Bible tells us that it was his pride. It was his pride desire to become 
like God. And do you know, what, what's that called, by the way? It's called desire. It was his desire to become like God, and that is why he did what he did. Now, it's interesting that we'll look at this as well, but the, the same thing happened in the Garden of Eden with Eve. It's the exact same sin. It's pride. Did God really tell you that if you eat of the fruit of that tree that, um, you know, you will surely die? You will not. You will become like God. You will become like God. Oh, really? And it was pride. I want to become like God. I want to be God. And I find it fascinating that there are cults in our world today that say that you can become God. That is the very premise of how sin came into the world because of that thing. So Ezekiel chapter 28, looking at verse 11 through 19, it says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and gra crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O garden, our guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. I could, it consumed you, and it turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now, in order to understand what this is speaking of, because when you read prophecy in the Bible, one of the, you have to consider two things. Is this near prophecy or future prophecy? What, what, what is the time frame? And oftentimes, when it comes to prophecy, there is a near and a future fulfillment and I think, like, when you look at the Old Testament in particular, like, let me give you an example. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, you know, unto us a child is, you know, there, there's going to be this child born, and it's speaking about the, the birth of this child through a virgin. Well, the, there was a near fulfillment that happened not too long after Isaiah gave that promise. There was a boy that was born, and that was the case, and, you know, people thought that that was the fulfillment. No, it wasn't. There, it was a picture of it, but Christ was coming. And, and, and so when you look at Bible prophecy, there's oftentimes this immediate fulfillment that's a picture, it's a shadow of, of what's to come. And in this particular instance, he's talking about the ruler of Tyre. He's talking, and in the first 10 verses, verses 1 through 10, he says, 
he's speaking specifically to the prince of Tyre. He's talking about the ruler of Tyre in that specific moment. He's saying, hey, there is a legitimate real prince that runs Tyre and he does this stuff, but who's the king? And he turns, you know, when he comes to chapter, verse 11, he turns his focus on the real person who's in control and orchestrating everything that's happening behind the scenes, and it is Satan. And so th- you have to kind of understand some of these things to get to the right uh, conclusion. It's not speaking of a physical king, but a spiritual king. It is speaking about the enemy. And God goes on to divulge information about his nature, about who he was before in the midst of, um, you know, it's sort of like God is looking backward in the present moment saying, man, remember who you were? I mean, it blows my mind to even sit here today and think about who you were. You were a, a, a guardian cherub, man. You had the prestigious position. You, 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 you reigned and ruled with me on, around the throne. You were my closest one, one of angels, you know, and, and this kind of thing. And, um, and, and, and I wonder how the Lord felt when he was telling Ezekiel to write these things, thinking, man, Satan, what did you do? Why'd you do that? But um, there's two things that, um, in verse 2, you know, th- this prince is being revealed as the same nature and character as Satan. He is prideful. He says, he says that he wants to become, that he, he thinks he's a god. He says, I am a god. And God says to him, no, you're a man. You're a man. God humbles us as quickly as we try and rise up. He will cause us to fall. And it's interesting, but, but the reason the prince of Tyre was speaking these things is because Satan was orchestrating that, and he wanted to become God. You know, the, it's, it, Satan isn't going to change his M.O. for you. He's just going to continue to press you into that same mold. You know, you can rule your own life. Who's going to stop you from doing this stuff? You're your own person, you know. You make your own way and all that. Really? That's what he thought, and look where he's going. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't go well for people. But uh, Ezekiel says, listen, Prince of Tyre, you are no God, but you are a man. The king of Tyre, Satan, he, he, God then begins to describe his nature here, and he says he was a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Did you notice the tense of the verse was past tense? You were. You were this. You were. God is describing who Lucifer, that word Lucifer, comes from Isaiah chapter 14. That's another area of scripture that you can write down if you're interested in learning more about Satan and and his own, you know, before he fell and how he fell. In, In Isaiah chapter 14, there are five I will statements. This is the pride of Satan, and we'll get, we'll go there in a minute, but, um, it's another area of scripture you can read about, but his name, Lucifer, comes from the translation of the bright star. The, it means brightness. That, that's, and, and the translation translates into Lucifer. That's what his name is in, in it, the, when, when it's being spoken of. And, and when you look at uh, in Revelation and many other places in the Bible, angels are spoken of as stars. So um, angels, by the way, are simple messengers. That's what it means. The word means messenger. They're sent for the purpose of whatever it is that God wants them to do. Satan was, was, um, he was this Lucifer. He was the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
G. Campbell Morgan says that here we have the most graphic and illuminating portrayal of Satan to be found in the whole Bible. His original power and greatness, wisdom and beauty, our exalted position are all set forth. Ezekiel describes for us here the nature of Satan, the, the signet. If you know anything about, you know, the, the, the dark ages or whatnot, you know, kings in those time periods and stuff, um, they, they used what was called a signet ring, and that signet ring had a symbol on it, and that symbol was meant to, to declare that whoever was bearing that symbol or carrying that symbol, whether it was embedded in some wax to, to, a, to seal a letter, to, that you would know that it's official, you know, from the king or whatever, the purpose of that signet was to declare the authority of the person who sent. What God is saying is Lucifer was the signet of God. He had this authority from God. He had this, the, he had this imprint upon him. Now, it doesn't say that about every angel, does it? No, it says that about him. He had some kind of a special position with the Lord where he, had, he, he, he was given some kind of a prestige or authority from the Lord. He had honor, and he could act upon the, the, the owner of the signet. Now, I don't know how that all works, and I don't understand it, but that's why, why God would describe it as such is because he's trying to help us understand the, the position that Lucifer had. He was the signet of perfection. He was the exact imprint of perfection, but he was not Jesus Christ. You know, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint. He is literally, that, that word means he was cut from the same cloth. He is the same as God. That's not what it's being said about Lucifer. And this idea that, you know, Jesus and, and Lucifer were brothers and that they, you know, no, that's not right. Jesus created Lucifer. All things were created by him. But Lucifer did have a, um, he did have a uh, specific, he had a great position, and he was perfect, it says. Not only that, but he was also full of wisdom, and he was beautiful in feature. Notice Ezekiel goes on to state that Lucifer was, now this was interesting. I'll be honest with you, I never came across, I never really considered this before. I studied this, but Lucifer was in the garden in his perfection, and, and which begs, to, begs the question, when was he created? When was Lucifer created? Well, you know, as I was researching this and stuff, it would seem that everything was created when God, in Genesis 1, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Everything was created in that moment. Even the angels were created in that moment. Even Lucifer was created in that moment. And in fact, you know, um, we know this because um, the Garden of Eden wasn't even created until the sixth day of creation. So we, 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 the, the Lucifer himself was perfect up until that point. And we know that also because of what God said in Genesis, um, you know, chapter 1, verse 31. He, it says, God saw everything that he made and Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So somewhere in that time period, somewhere, whatever, somewhere before that day, you know, we don't know what, what the time frame is, but the, the angels were created. They were created some, somewhere in that day. He was perfect up until the sixth day of creation and beyond that because he came into the Garden of Eden. He walked in the Garden perfect. Now, that blows my mind to think of that. 
that the enemy was perfect in the Garden of Eden. If God, uh, if God created Lucifer to sin as well as, you know, then, then how could he have said everything was very good? How could he have said that at creation if, he, if, if that was the case? If he had it in his heart to do that and God put that in him, he couldn't have said that, that everything was good because it was not good. And we know when God uses these kind of words, he means perfect. When he says good, he means perfect. It was perfect. There was no variance at all. There was no darkness. He was perfect. It was perfect. And so Satan at that point in time was perfect. Back to Ezekiel chapter 28. He goes on and he tells us that Lucifer was created. Um, he was given great glory and splendor. He was covered with these stones. Now, if you, if you do any kind of research on, uh, you know, the, the high priests of Israel, you know that they were given a breastplate. And in that breastplate were these stones, except for three more. There was nine of them listed here. But I find it interesting that the same nine that are listed that, that, that Lucifer was covered with, literally he shined like, I don't know how that, how that looked or whatever, but, but those same ones were in the breastplate of the high priest. You know, and, 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 it, and it makes sense because he was a cherub which if you know anything about the Ark of the Covenant, what are those two angels that face inward over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant? What are they? They're cherubim. Same thing with what Satan was. This gives you a picture of who he was. That he was, you know, he was probably the chief guardian angel of the Lord around his throne, that he was the shadow that covered the Lord, that he, you know, he had this kind of position. Now, the King James Version has, you know, the way that the ESV translated verse 13 is different than what the King James says, but verse 13 is where people get this idea that Satan was the worship leader, whether in the Garden of Eden or in heaven, wherever he was, that he was the worship leader, and the King James translated like this. It says, the worship, the work, workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Timbrels and pipe are, pipes are musical instruments. And so people, along with this, along with uh, Isaiah 14, 11, are the passages that people refer to when they're saying, oh, Satan's the worship leader in heaven. But notice it wasn't, ambition that got Lucifer where he was. It wasn't anything that he did. He was created for that position. God said in Ezekiel chapter 28, I placed you there. And I think there's a key for us to understand in that, that, you know, we don't have to fight for the position that we want. If God has that for us, he'll give it to us because he created us for whatever it is that we're called to do. You don't have to fight for that. Satan didn't have to try and climb his way up the angelic, you know, pole, as it were. But you and I don't have to try and claw our way up the, the whatever, the, the, the church ladder. You don't have to do that. You can rest and just let the Lord do the work because he'll open the doors. 
But I would also say this, that God had created you for something. He created you for a purpose, and he has a very, he has a very specific job for you, just as he did with Satan. He had a very specific job for Satan, and God, had, God created you, and he has a very specific job for you. So, you know, find that. Rest in it, and let the Lord place you in that, and don't ignore his voice. Here, um, it, it says that God placed him in that position. Verse 15 goes on to say that he was blameless before the Lord. Listen, the point of all is this to say is that Lucifer was perfect. He was perfect up until this point. What happened? How did he go from perfection to non-perfection? Isn't that what we're asking about Adam and Eve? It's the same thing, right? How did that happen? I mean, they were perfect. They, were, they didn't have the same temptations you have. They, they don't even know what it, they didn't even know pre-fall what a temptation was. You don't understand that. They were naked. They didn't think that was abnormal. That was, there was nothing wrong with that. I mean, they, 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 they had no understanding of evil at all. Neither did Satan. Neither did Satan. He didn't understand that either. So what happened? How does that, how does that work? Here's what it says in verse 15, the second part of it. It says, you were like this. You were perfect in everything, Satan, until or till... That's the transitional word there. Till unrighteousness was, listen closely, found in you. It was found in you. How do you, I mean, if you're describing something that you put in somebody, do you find it or do you know it's there? I mean, if I'm God and I put evil in Satan, I know it's there. I wouldn't be finding it. But it says he found it in him. And I think that's interesting. Because I, I think it's describing the reality that it was not there before. And now, all of a sudden, it is there. It's been found. What happened? How did that happen? He was blameless, and now, all of a sudden, there is some unrighteousness within him. Something changed. It's his desire. His desire changed. No longer did he want to be the second man. He, no longer did he want to be, you know, God's servant, but he wanted to be God. It was pride. That was the issue. He, the Lord goes on to tell us that in verse 17. And it was, he, he became proud. Why? Because of his beauty. Look at me. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think, you listen, angels don't worship other angels in heaven, but I'm wondering if he walked around saying, look how beautiful I am. You know, and people are like, whoa, you, you know, like a third of the angels are going, you are beautiful, man. You know, I follow you. You know, they're like, well, let's go, to, let's go up to the throne room. Let's take this joint over. You know, not a good idea. Didn't work out for him at all. Not at all. But, but I, <laughs> I, th I was thinking, you know, did he walk around with like mirror, mirror on the wall? Who's the fairest of them all? You know, I mean, that's the idea. Vanity. Pride. It was pride. Where did it start? Where, where did this iniquity start? Where did the, did the transgression come from? It came from his desire, which was rooted in pride. That was the reality. He corrupted his wisdom. He had full wisdom, and he corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his splendor, his own glory. 
Isaiah chapter 14, which is, again, still future. It hasn't happened yet, but it does look backward at the pride of Satan. And I want to look at that real quickly. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 14 says this. You said in your heart, this is God recounting what Satan said. You said in your heart, that, that goes to tell you right there, God sees your heart. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't have to, you don't have to verbalize something for God to know what's in there. He sees it. He, he says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Jesus, the, 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 the Lord said, I saw it in your heart. I wonder in that moment as Satan was coming, you know, like, like the moment that thought came into his heart or whatever, that, that desire came in his heart, did, did the Father look over at the Son and the Holy Spirit? You guys getting this? You know, he's really going to come up here and try and overtake our... Th- Are you kidding me? He's really going to do this. You know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, but he did see it. The Lord saw it before it even happened. So why did he let it happen? Why, why did God allow Satan... What, if he knew... He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows everything. If he knew from the beginning of time, before he even created the angels, that Satan was going to do this, why did he continue? You could ask the same question about Adam and Eve. I'm sure you have. I've asked the same question. Why did God continue on with creation when he knew that the majority of the world would reject him, even after he sent Christ? That the road that leads to destruction is wide. And many go that way. But the road that leads to life is narrow, and few find it. You think like, man, Lord, what are you thinking? It's for love's sake. It's for, it, for his purpose. I don't understand it, but he, did, he allowed these things for his own purpose. But the en- he saw the enemy coming. And, you know, I, I, I have to think that just as much as I think our sin grieves the Lord, I have to think that in that moment that, that Satan's sin, that, 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 that pride that was in him grieved the Lord. You know, I, I wonder, you know, was God angry? Was he, you know, when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, was it like a boom, you know, and the Lord just with a thunderous rebuke or was it with a disappoint, you know, just this, 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 this compassionate like, man, why'd you do it? Like I imagine Jesus with Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Friend, why have you come? With concern and compassion in his eyes, why? Why have you come? This says here, there was five statements, five I will statements. I will, I will, I will, I will. Where does that come from? It comes from your desire. It comes from desire. It comes from your own heart. It comes from things within you. Beware of your desires. Beware of where they're going to lead you, right? Satan somehow got this desire in his heart, and then he wanted to produce his own will. I will do this, and we can do the same thing. Even as Christians being redeemed, we, we can do that. God didn't put that in him. Somehow he chose that route. I don't understand that, but God's not going to control 
him if he didn't want to be controlled. God say, hey, you know what? I'm like, Lord, just control me. <laughs> just take over. Just, just, I don't want to go the wrong way. Just take over. And he still won't do that. He won't overstep your will. He wants you to follow him because you love him, because that's what love is. Love isn't something you demand or command. It's something that you allow, and the Lord does that. I liken it to what Joshua said in Joshua chapter 24. When he, he circled up the entire, tri, all the tri, 12 tribes of Israel, he circled them up, and he said this to them. He said, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Where did that come from in, in Joshua's heart? It came from his desire. Why was his desire to do so? Because he delighted himself in the Lord. Just like the word says. You know, I, 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 I come across people that are struggling in their lives and I say, hey, you know, why are you struggling so much, man? I mean, we all struggle. But I'm talking about, you know, like I don't understand why God's not, you know, uh, he doesn't show up and I don't sense he's in my life or anything like that. And I say, well, are you pursuing him? Are you seeking him? Are you, are you like, well, you know, I mean, I just don't have time for that, <laughs> you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. You're thinking, okay, but God's not going to just make you. You have to choose to serve the Lord. Joshua had to choose to do that. If you want that kind of, you know, heart, then you have to, you have to pursue that kind of heart. You have to press into the Lord. You know, and somewhere along the lines, the enemy stopped doing that. Satan stopped pressing into God. Somewhere along the lines, Eve, although she was deceived, she chose to, you know, take the bait, and she wanted to become like God. It was pride. She was following a desire in her heart. And so where does all this come from? I think it comes from our heart. I think it comes from desire. I think it comes, I think... Lucifer or Adam and Eve, it doesn't matter. It's all a result of desire. And uh, I, I would go into Genesis 3 and talk about how Eve was, but we've already gone through that. So at the end of the day, here's the thing. Where did the rogue desires come from in the angels' hearts, in the human hearts? Not from God. Not from God, Period. Because God is not the orchestrator of evil. Yes, there was sin in heaven. Yes, Satan is presently in heaven. And yes, heaven is still defiled to this day. But God did not create sin. God, God allows us to, to take this path or whatever path we're going to go. But here's what I love about God is he pursues us and he continues to draw us back. You know, unfortunately for a, you know, as I see scripture, there is no redemption for an angelic being because they're not flesh and blood like you and I. They have been in the presence of God. And so, therefore, there is no coming back from that. Jesus Christ didn't die for angels. He died for you and I. And that's why it's by faith we're, we're saved. It's because we didn't see it happen. 
We don't, we've, we've never been in the presence of God. We don't understand His majesty and how glorious He is and any of those things, but an angel does. And Satan, you know, I, I won't say he's responsible for swaying a third of the angels, but a third of the angels were in the same boat he was in. A third of the angels chose the same path that Satan chose. And it's, it's just crazy. But what does that say about you and I? We have to be careful. You know, because God didn't create sin, but he'll allow you to sin. He'll allow you to walk down those, those paths, you know. But his heart for you is that you would live in that redemption that Christ has given, that you would change on a daily basis, that you would become more like Jesus, and you would flee. Like, like the idea of just literally like, you know, you know, trying to break free from anything that restrains you, that's holding you back. Do whatever is necessary to get sin out of your life. That's what God wants from us. And if we, if we do that, you're going to find victory, not because of your power, but because the Lord sees your, your, your intent, purposeful, God, I want to become more like Jesus. And he's like, man, you seek him, you'll find him. And that's the reality. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord. And uh, what a great little study, Lord, just to consider the origin of sin and, and uh, Lord, what that means for us today. God, we know that um, if you didn't overpower the will of Satan, if you didn't overpower the will of Eve, and you weren't the one that created these things, that we can find ourselves in the same place. So we ask you, Lord, to help us to, to truly delight in you, God, that the desires in our hearts would be godly desires. They would be from you and not from ourselves. Lord, save us from ourselves, God. We ask you to just um, put in our hearts the uh, just... The, the passion for you, Lord, compassion for others, that we would live the life that you call us to live. We thank you, Father, for just being with us and uh, for opening your word to us tonight now, and we ask you to just continue to produce fruit, and uh, we just lift all these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.